Welcome to the Big Unlock Podcast, your leading source of info for insights and best practices in digital health and digital transformation. Join host Patty Padmanabhan, CEO of Demo Consulting and co-author of Healthcare Digital Transformation, How Technology, Consumerism, and Pandemic are Accelerating the Future, in conversation with leading practitioners of healthcare and technology. Hello again, and welcome back to this episode of the Big Unlock Podcast. My special guest today is the Chief Digital Officer of a health system that predominantly serves Medicaid populations in a risk-based payment model. She talks to us about how they're using digital programs to drive improved healthcare outcomes and reduce the cost of care. Let's jump right in. And before we go into the conversation, a quick shout out to our partners and sponsors. Be one. I am thrilled to be here with Denise Basso, Chief Digital Officer at Oshner Health in Louisiana. Denise, what a pleasure it is to have you on the show and welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. So let's start with your role at Oshner. What does it entail and a little bit about your background and how you got Oshner in this role? Yeah, so it's been a, uh, it's been a journey. I'm a primary care physician by training. But I uh, got involved in a startup fairly early in my career called Up to Date, which for those who aren't aware, it's think of it as kind of an evidence-based Google for doctors. And then uh, that startup grew and we were acquired by a larger corporation. And then I became CEO of that business, as well as building some others kind of around clinical decision support as a general theme within that space. And I did that for, ran that business for about 13 years and then just decided to make the move to Oshner in January of this year as the chief digital officer. So, um, you know, I think it's a really interesting time to be in healthcare. I think healthcare organizations, health systems have a, a big role to play in what the future of healthcare looks like. And I wanted to be a part of that. So what does the role of the Chief Digital Officer entail at Oshner? It's a great question. We're still figuring that out. Broadly, I have responsibility for all of our telemedicine, for what we call our digital medicine solutions, which is largely our tools around remote patient monitoring, remote patient management, largely around chronic diseases, but in in other areas as well. And then our innovation team, which we call Innovation Oshner. So those are the, the three broad areas. More specifically, I I wear a couple of hats, both using digital technologies to improve the care of patients within Oshner, what we call in the family, but also taking a lot of the the tools that we've built and looking for opportunities to commercialize them externally. So you're in Louisiana, and uh, I guess as with every other health system, uh, your population, your payer mix drives your digital priorities in some way and your focus areas. Can you touch on that a little bit? What kind of populations do you serve and how does that inform your digital priorities? It's huge. Ashner is in a really unique market with just a a lot of opportunities. So we uh, generally fight it out with Mississippi for being ranked 49th or 50th in most health outcomes, which isn't a great place to be. And we certainly want to improve that. Some of that is driven by just the prevalence of chronic disease in the state. Uh, Some of it's driven by the payer mix. We have a lot of 
patients on Medicaid. I think it's something like 20% of adults in Louisiana and 50% of children. I mean, it's a pretty high number uh, are on Medicaid. We have a lot of patients who are on risk-based contracts. We do a lot of value-based care. Probably more than 50% of our patients are on some kind of risk-based contract, which in many ways allows us to be more innovative. For us to not only survive, but thrive as a health system, we have to do a lot of things really well. So it's driven a lot of the innovation that we have a history and are are kind of known for. And it's driven a lot of the, the tools we've built again, to be able to take care of, of, you know, that type of patient population and drive both engagement and outcomes. So that was honestly one of the things that really attracted me to Oshner because that mix, again, allows us to potentially be a good, you know, or fertile ground for driving change and transformation because we have to. And there's nothing, nothing that drives more innovation than, than the need to do that. So, so our location is really key. You touched on a couple of things there. You talked about uh, chronic disease management. You talked about the payer mix. And, and in fact, you made a very interesting observation there. Being in risk-based contracts, uh, being in capitated models or whatever uh, you choose to call them, allows you to be innovative because you have a fixed part of resources within which you have to make everything work. And so it allows you to think out of the box a little bit and potentially use technology-enabled solutions to drive uh, digital programs, which is what your role is all about. Tell us about some of the building blocks for driving a digital program. You know, obviously it's a tech, but, but I guess it's also a lot to do with the process, to do with what your patient preferences are. Can you talk to us a little bit about what are the building blocks that you work with as you approach your population's digital needs or preferences? Yeah, you must sit in on some of our meetings because you you hit the nail on the head. We talk all the time that there's technology for sure, but it's the, the process and people that really drive the technology to be successful. You really need the combination of, of all of those things. The technology is almost the easy part. You know, everybody talks about, you know, just one example, everybody talks about AI and healthcare and building AI models. But the key to making those successful, yes, you need a good model, but the key to making them successful is how you implement them. And what happens to all that data? Where does it go? You know, we can't push everything back on the physicians like we've tended to do over time. So how do you deal with that? Even if I think about the remote patient management solutions that we've built, and I intentionally use the name management and not monitoring, it's easy to monitor people remotely. That's truthfully the easiest part. Yeah, you have to do some things right to drive engagement and and make sure the patients can actually do what they need to do. But truthfully, that's the easy part. The hard part becomes now that you've monitored them, what do you do? And that's where we've put a lot of focus around our programs is we're very good technically and let's take advantage of that. But what do you need to build around that technology to drive outcomes? Because that's obviously what we all want to do. Let's drill into that a little bit because I know you published uh, uh, some research around the impact you've had with your remote patient monitoring and management as you rightly make that distinction. Your remote patient management solutions for chronic diseases, such as diabetes and so on. Can you drill into that a little bit for the benefit of our listeners and, and tell us a little bit about what kind of programs 
have made an impact and what kind of impact? Can you talk some numbers or metrics or anything that helps our listeners understand? Sure. So at the highest level, uh, we'll talk about diabetes and hypertension because those are the programs that have been available the longest and for which we have the most data. So with these programs, it's pretty simple. We provide patients with devices to monitor blood pressure, to monitor uh, blood glucose, weight, those sorts of things. We um, have uh, a mechanism for getting all of those readings into MyChart, which is, you know, we use Epic and to get them into MyChart. And then we surround that with a separate care team. So it's a really different model. This doesn't go back to their primary care physicians and we communicate with primary care, but we've built a separate care team that's comprised of pharmacists or other APPs, as well as health coaches who absorb all of that data. And in addition to health coaching, also do medication management. And that's where I say it's the, the remote patient management piece. So we uh, have a, a way of not just monitoring patients at home, but also taking that information and doing something about it at the very highest level. And we found a few things. So first, we've done some propensity match studies. So for patients who are in our digital medicine programs, compared with patients who are not in them for any variety of reasons, but match them in, in a lot of ways so that we're, you know, we, we're, we're getting, we have good data comparison. And routinely patients who are in our digital medicine programs get under control faster, stay under control longer, have reduced utilization of our emergency department, reduced utilization of hospital admissions, and overall, save the health system somewhere between $100 to $200 per month each because of reduced utilization. And that's all in, including their medications. So that's why, you know, for in a value-based world, that's really important. And I think the interesting things are, one, patients really love it. So our net promoter scores are in the, the high 80s. But second thing is that it's worked in every population we've tested it in. So it works in our fee-for-service populations, it works in our managed care populations. And maybe most surprising is it, it works in our Medicaid population. So mm -hmm. where we've been able to, we've now have over 4,000, maybe 4,400 Medicaid patients in a, a pilot that we just started 18 months ago that was supposed to be 1,000 patients and it's already over 4,000. And again, all of those outcomes that I just cited are actually greater in our Medicaid population than, than elsewhere, including net promoter scores. So we've been able to digitally engage these patients and drive these sorts of outcomes. And that's a remarkable story. And, and in some ways, it's counterintuitive to think that uh, low-income Medicaid populations in uh, high uh, rural areas are responding to technology-enabled care in the way that you've described. And so I'm just curious to know, how did you get your populations to relate to the technology and adapt to the technology and be a part of it? Are there any learnings there that you think you'd like to share for the benefit of others who are working with similar populations? Especially, how do you get your patients to really embrace the technology? Yeah, I think there's a couple things. So one, we work hard to make sure that that patients can use the technology. So we have a few different means 
to onboard patients, make sure they're comfortable with the, the devices and that everything is working well. So that's the, the technology piece, piece of it. And we've been doing it long enough that we kind of have that down. And some of it can be done remotely. Some of it can be done in person. But there, again, we've kind of figured out how to do that part of it. But the other thing, because people have asked me, like the, the degree of reduction in inpatient admission, as an example, far exceeds what you would expect from mm. if we just look think about hypertension and what kinds of what kinds of inpatient admissions are related to hypertension or what kind of emergency department visits are related to hypertension. You think of coronary heart disease, stroke, those types of things. And the reduction that we're seeing in those high cost areas of of the health system are much greater than you would expect to be driven by, you know, what you think of as complications of hypertension and diabetes. And my we don't know this for certain, but my hypothesis, and this is where it relates to your question, is that when you surround the technology with a care team that's completely focused on that, you know, not distracted with trying to do a hundred other things, but completely focused on that, that's what really drives the engagement. So it's they're they're sending these readings in and that's engagement, but they're getting feedback on that. And we're experimenting with ways of doing digital coaching and those those sorts of things. So it doesn't always have to be a, a person. Sometimes it's a, a digital engagement, but they're getting that that feedback routinely. And I think that's causing a level of engagement that we've just not seen before in these populations. So again, it comes back to that. It's not just the technology, it's the process and people that surround it. The perfect trifecta. And it seems like what you've just described is a trifecta in action and being very, very effective in action. Let's take a quick break. And I'd like to acknowledge our partners and sponsors, Be Well. And if you like this podcast, rate us on whatever favorite podcast platform you're listening on. And if you're interested in listening to the archives, visit us at thebigunlock.com. With that, back to the conversation. So let's talk about the tech itself. I imagine that you obtain the tech from third-party sources, whether it's data health startups or your EHR vendor or, or other uh, sources. And then, of course, you have an in-house capability that you build, I imagine, to manage all the data and the analytics and so on. So how do you go about making your technology selection choices? Uh, build versus buy, and if you're going to buy, uh, you start with the EHR first, you look for best in class. Can you talk to us a little bit about your how you go about that process? I wish I had a definitive answer for all of that because most of it is, it depends. As, as a lot of health systems do, we tend to rely on ourselves first. So, well, I should say we um, Epic is our backbone, mm-hmm. and so we always want to see what Epic can do, but then uh, we tend to build a lot of things ourselves. I think we're starting to recognize, not starting, it's it's not that we haven't done partnerships before, but I think increasingly recognizing that we need to take advantage of more technology that's that already exists out there. So I don't have a definitive answer. I think the important thing in making those decisions, though, is you have to have a clear sense of what you want to do and what outcomes you're trying to drive. You know, we get so much outreach from technology vendors these days. And the signal to noise ratio is very low, which makes it you know, really difficult and to the point where 
a lot of times we don't engage because the it, it just takes so many conversations to have yeah. you know anything that that works. So it's far better to say, here's a problem we're trying to solve. Let's go see if anybody else has solved it. But again, have very specific outcomes that we have in mind because you know people have built all sorts of things that solve all sorts of problems. But if they solve the problem we want to solve, and then you know it's a simple calculus of what does it cost to to do that versus you know building things ourselves and the the, the time that's required. So I think increasingly we're going to find that it's more effective to partner than we have uh, in the past. But I think what doesn't work is to just take in a bunch of cool technology and then figure out what to do with it. Yeah, I love the signal-to-noise uh, ratio analogy. I imagine that in today's context, the signals are getting even weaker because of the uh, current VC funding environment and some of the uncertainties that many of these innovative startups have to live through, whether they're going to make it to the other side and so on and so forth. Is that a concern to you when it comes to looking at relatively young companies that may have a really good solution, but may not be as stable as you want them to be. Yeah, I mean, that's always a concern. They're definitely, I mean, we all know the funding that ramped up in 2021. Seems like it's rationalizing a bit this year, which is good. Not, not well, decreasing relative to last year, but more on par with the trajectory that happened before the crazy 2021. But given, again, everything that's that's happened in the last couple of years, I think there's the concern of how do we find you know, those gems? And then once we found them, I think you ha- almost have to take the approach. If you're going to start with early stage companies, you almost have to take the approach that we're going to invest with them to help them be successful or else I think you do run the risk of a bunch of these going under or else you have to take the perspective that you're going to work with them, but be prepared by whatever means that they may not be successful. And then, you know, what's the plan B? So I think you, uh, or, or maybe both of those, you know, how do you work together to ensure success? And then what's always have a plan B. But I do think developing that ecosystem where you can be an innovative partner is going to be really important for health systems moving forward. How do you measure the success of your programs? How do you keep score? Do you have a specific set of metrics, targeting. Can you talk to us about that? So a lot of our internal metrics are around enrollment in the programs. That's obviously a big one for us. And then the outcomes that we're we're driving. So one of the metrics that we use quite a bit for our uh, chronic disease programs are our HEDIS metrics. And, you know, are we continuing to to drive those upwards and doing better than than our usual care. Some quality metrics, some just, you know, enrollment types of metrics. And then to the degree that, you know, that we're beginning to commercialize these externally, we obviously have financial goals around around what all of that looks like. So it's it's a combination of all of those. I had a question related to the investments that you're making. Now a lot of what you just talked about relate to care, especially remote care, especially chronic care management. And these were the high impact, high value use cases, and these are great stories. Can you share anything to, uh, as regards access related solutions where you're driving engagement through digital tools, technologies, as a case may be? Yeah, access is really critical, probably one of the top 
two or three priorities that we have. So we have a whole group that focuses on consumer engagement. And then we collaborate to think about what are our new ways that we can continue to make access easier and easier. So some of it is as basic as making sure that our providers have capability to to have patients do online scheduling. It sounds so easy, but it turns out that uh, that's not actually so easy to drive, but we've been pretty successful there. We have goals for our providers around access within a certain period of time. We're beginning to think about access a little bit differently. Access doesn't have to be a face-to-face meeting. Access can be a, a digital encounter. That can be the first access. And then as we expand how we're thinking about remote patient management, doesn't have to exclusively be around chronic diseases. It can be as simple as monitoring symptoms in a patient with chronic migraines and doing that again digitally, not just in person. So so we're beginning to expand our concept of access beyond just a face-to-face encounter to what are all the digital encounters that we can have with these patients that allow us to stay more connected, but also provide good access when they need it. You know, we're talking about things also e-consults and e-visits and just all of the asynchronous tools that we have to deliver virtual care are all components of the access equation. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned online scheduling, uh, subscheduling in particular. Our research, uh, and I want to share this anecdote and this data point with you, our research indicates that online scheduling is one of those really high importance, high priority areas for health systems, but not many have deployed it broadly and even fewer are actually getting the kind of success that they're looking. So from your comments, I can tell you, you're not alone <laughs> in that, but uh, it is certainly a high you know, high impact area that everybody else is looking at. So we're coming up to the end of our time here. Let's talk a little bit about a couple of things really quickly. Governance, how do you go about governing digital at uh, Washington? What does a governance model look like? And you know, who's involved in uh, driving the program? Besides yourself. And uh, when you say governance, just in terms of like the strategy or... The strategy, how does it get funded? Who are the people who get involved in the implementation? How do you interact with the CIO or the IT leadership? Those kinds of things. Yeah, great question. So like every health system, prioritization becomes... that There are a lot of top priorities. (laughs) So that's always challenging, (laughs) I think. You know, one thing, we went through a um, corporate strategy refresh in the last year. And I think one of the things that we really drove home is that even with all of our, you know, our, our varied strategic priorities, digital transformation isn't a separate priority. It's, I mean, there is, it's kind of separate, but it really becomes a part of every strategic priority within the health system. And I think, mm-hmm. Again, sounds like a very simple statement, but it's an impactful one because it means that it becomes a priority when we're thinking about solving virtually anything across the health system. So I think one thing is we're fortunate, I'm fortunate that it's been set up for success from that perspective because it's been recognized that it, it it's an important part of every piece of our strategy. It's an executive team level position. And so as we're talking as an executive team about what we need to do, it, it becomes a part of, of every conversation. We probably spend more just on innovation than 
a lot of health systems do because it's it's just been a, a commitment there. So doesn't mean we obviously have endless funding for that. Mm-hmm. And there isn't a set amount where it's, you know, it's got to be X percent of our operating income every year, but that number grows every year. And from an IS perspective, it's very embedded in most of our strategic priorities. It ends up not being quite as challenging as as it may yeah. sound. I think the what's potentially more challenging is, you know, again, for what we call outside the family or for, you know, things that we may, you know, separate businesses that we might want to drive. That's where I think the level of investment, we have debates and how we fund all of that compared with how a lot of digital startups are being funded. That becomes a trickier proposition, but it's been set up from an executive team perspective, you know, well, I think to drive what we need to drive. Well, if you had one uh, best practice or learning from the last six, eight months that you've been in, in this role for your peers in the industry, especially those who are addressing similar populations and uh, maybe in earlier stages of their digital journeys, what's the one thing or two things that you were born to leave behind for them? Yeah, I think it's probably uh, goes back to what we already talked about is, you know, it's not just about the the technology. I think that's my biggest learning. I do think that if you have an organization that either takes a lot of risk or is driving towards that, you can't move fast enough. So it has to become a system priority and it has to, again, go beyond what the technology is. So those are the, you know, probably my, my key learnings to be able to drive success. That's great. Well, uh, Denise, we are at the end of our time here. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for sharing your insights, sharing some uh, of your best practices and learnings and your whole story uh, at Oshner. It's so inspiring and remarkable. Thank you once again, and we'll, uh, we'll be following you and your work. Great. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Once again, I'd like to thank our partners, BeWell, for their sponsorship and their support. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. We invite you to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, The Healthcare Digital Transformation Leader. Write to us at info at with your feedback and questions.